0: So our scripture reading today is going to be coming from the book of Ephesians. It's going to be Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. If you would like to follow along in our red Bibles in the pews, the page is 977. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Regen. Uh, My name is Nathan. For those of you who have never met before, I've been part of Regen since uh, around 2012, Uh, and I love this church. Uh, I've been here for off and on for those seven years, but when I moved to the Bay Area, Uh, It was just after kind of a lonely season in my life. I was in the Peace Corps for two years in Albania. And uh, I wondered why God brought me here in the first place. I was ready to just not have to start over. And and I I knew almost no one in this area. Uh, But when I found Regen, this became my community. This became really my spiritual family. So to get to stand before the church now and, and be given this responsibility to teach the Word of God and to call Regen, into greater obedience uh, is, a, is a big responsibility and it's one that I, I feel really blessed to take on this morning. And my hope is that God speaks to you even in spite of, uh, of me or anything that I might say that's off uh, and that he's glorified through this. And really part of the blessing of, of getting to prepare to share the word of God with you all this morning is, is getting to experience God teaching me in my own life through this passage and what it has to say. So what I'm going to do now is just as much preach to myself as I'm preaching to all of you, uh, if not more so. So I hope that you're able to receive these words of God and that anything that is not of God will just pass away. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we, we invite you into this space, into this time. We ask that your spirit uh, open our ears to receive from you. May these... Uh, words may this passage be illuminated to us, uh, and may we see it with fresh eyes. Lord, I ask that uh, even now, as as we listen and we hear, uh, that we would get a taste of your love, Lord, and the grandness of that. Ask all these things, Lord, in your name, Amen. Uh, so Jesus was asked, "What is the greatest commandment in the law?" And his reply was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he followed that up by saying the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law of the prophets hang on those two commands. <clears throat> and Jesus, when he was doing this, he was paraphrasing two separate passages from the Old Testament. And these were really central to Jewish life. They, they spoke, spoke these prayers pretty much every day. And maybe like the Jews, you've heard these commandments a lot of times, and they kind of wash over you when you hear them, but uh, one of the things that's always stuck with me and sort of stuck out to me is how strange it is to be commanded to love. Have you thought about that? It's kind of struck me as, as odd for a while. And remember, this isn't some kind of side quest in the Christian faith, like, oh, this is something you do in addition to all these other things. This is the central commandment, the great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. First of all, how can such a thing as love be commanded? How can it be a duty? Doesn't that kind of detract from its worth? If some king or ruler were to, to stand up and make a law that says, all must love me, we would kind of gag and, and scoff at that idea. Uh, and and say, you know, in marriage, love is a little bit different. You have vows, you have commitments. But even then, if if we were to hear a husband say to his wife, you must love me, wouldn't that kind of raise some flags for us? Or at least have you questioning the health of that relationship? Yet God here commands it, the greatest command for us. But even beyond just the fact that he commands it, there's this question of how. How do you love an infinite God? How do you begin to love him? We've never seen him, we're told that he's beyond time, and that though we bear his image, his ways are higher than our ways. So this commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, even though it's something that's embedded in Christian culture and and kind of seems to imply that you can just by sheer force of will start loving God uh, to whom even the best of us only have partial knowledge, the slightest knowledge, and, and little firsthand experience. So my question for you this morning is this. Do you love God? Really, do you, do you deeply love God more than anything, more than your comforts, more than your obsessions, more than your spouse, more than your kids? I think a lot of us know lots of things about God. We admire him. We fear him or we revere him. But to really love him, that's something greater than those things. Uh, and it's something more grand, and I, I would even say experiential. All of this can, can say, seem kind of odd. And if you're hearing these words and it's kind of confusing and it resonates with sort of a sense of unease that you already have with God uh, or with Christianity, my prayer is that God will open your mind this morning to understand something. And, and Regent, I want us all to understand this. I believe the reason that we fail to obey the great commandment to love God with all our hearts and soul and minds, and why to our ears it just feels strange to be commanded to love God, is that we've either never known or we've forgotten what it is to experience the love that comes from God and to have our lives completely changed by that love. Our passage today is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and and the central message for us today, what I want us to all take away is that We should expect and seek profound, life-changing experiences of the love and the joy of God. And we're going to look at this through three questions. So you can store these away in your head right now. The first is, why do we even need this type of experience? The second is, what is that experience itself of the love of God? And the third and final one is, how should we receive that? So let's start with the first question. Why do we need this type of spiritual experience of the love of God. We're going to jump around through a bunch of different verses throughout this sermon, so if you want to just follow what's projected on the screen, that might be the easiest way to do it. i want to start off by saying, remember that when Paul is writing this letter to the group of churches in Ephesus, it's, it's uh, a region that's in modern-day Turkey. But he's writing them not to non-Christians. This is a group of Christians that he's writing this prayer to. And once you realize that this is a prayer for Christians, there's kind of some puzzles that bubble up to the surface that deserve a little closer look and draw you deeper into this prayer. Uh, for example, in verses 16 and 17, he's praying that Christ will dwell in their hearts. But if you look back in this same book of Ephesians to chapter 2, verse 22, he's already just said, Christ is already dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. And we know that throughout Scripture, it's true that every person who becomes a Christian has Christ indwelling. So why is he praying this? And uh, in verses 18 and 19, here's another one. He says, I pray that you'll know the love of Christ. And there's plenty of places in the Bible, for example, in, in 1 John chapters 3 and 4, where it says you're not even really a Christian if you don't know and believe and trust in the sacrificial and saving love of Christ. And then finally, one more puzzle. He's praying that all Christians in Ephesus be filled with the fullness of God. And again, you can can look in this exact same book in Ephesians, uh, in chapter 1. And Paul says, all Christians who are united to Christ by faith are filled with the fullness of God. Or Colossians 2, another book by Paul, verses 9 and 10, he says the same thing. So they're already supposed to be filled with the fullness of God. My question for you is why is Paul so passionately praying that his Christian friends get what he already says that they possess elsewhere in his writings? What do you think? There's a, an author I like a lot. Uh, his name is A.W. Tozer. And when we started our, our home group, you, uh, a couple of years back, we went through that book together. And one of the quotes from there is uh, it says, To have found God and still pursue him, is the soul's paradox of love. I think this speaks to to what the potential answer might be here. And it's this, that it's one thing to believe in and trust in Christ, and it's another thing to experience the love of Christ in your heart, in your inner being, in, in the center of who you are, the core of your personality and your identity, what makes you who you are. It's one thing to know and trust the love of Christ, and it's another thing to actually experience these things, and to experience that deep inside of you. Uh, there's an example that Tim Keller uses in one of his sermons, uh, and he talks about how it would be possible for you to actually inherit a massive amount of money, say, from a relative who passed, um, and it's, it's legally yours. And it's not only legally yours, but they've, they've set up an account for you that has all that money, it's ready for you to just draw on. But on a particular night, you might forget your checks at home, or you might forget your ATM pin, and all the banks are closed. And on that particular night, because you don't have any of those things, you're basically as cold and as hungry as if that money wasn't there. It's legally yours. You have every right to it. But that night, it's not existentially yours. It's not practically yours. It doesn't actually affect the way you live. And Paul's writing this to Christians. He could be writing it to us. And what he's saying is this situation is one that we, any of us could find ourselves in. Uh, it's, the situation is that we're not affected by what we actually know to be true. We're not shaped by it. We're not really affected by it deeply. We don't know experientially and practically what it is. If it hasn't transformed your life, it's because you haven't experienced it in your inmost self. And that's, a, unfortunately, just a really normal situation we find ourselves in. Uh, but we see Paul's praying this for the church, but he doesn't just pray for them. In verse 14, it says, he bows the knee. And this, this is, as I was studying this passage, one of the things that I didn't really know and was surprising to me is that in, if you read in the Old and New Testament, you see that ordinarily people in the Bible didn't pray down on their knees. The typical posture of prayer was actually standing. And, and Jesus even says it in Mark 11:25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And that was just the ordinary way of praying was to stand. But when people did bow their knee, it meant unusually intense emotion. So when Paul says, I bow the knee that you get this for people. Uh, and in those days, people face all kinds of difficulties that we only know, you know, a little bit of disease, extreme poverty, war, violence. And yet this is the thing that he's praying for them in this prayer. He's writing to them so that they see this and understand this. And just like them, I think some of us this morning, we can uh, look at this and and listen to what Paul is saying to us. So that you might think that your, your big problem is a financial one, and that if if you could just, you know, get past this financial hump, that everything would be okay. Or you might think that your, your big problem is a, a physical one, that, like, this is, this is the problem that I'm dealing with. If this could be resolved, then everything else would be okay. Or relational. You might have a, a broken relationship with someone, and it's tearing you apart, and you just, you just hope and you pray that that would be resolved, and that's the thing. But Paul says, no, you're, you're wrong. You need this more than anything. If you had this thing... You could handle all circumstances. There's a great need for bringing the love of Christ into your inner self. And, and that's the biggest need that any of us have. Uh, I'm, I'm using a lot of language here of experience and about uh, kind of tasting and experiencing the love of God. But I want to take kind of pause and take a moment to, to touch on that. Because I think experience can also sometimes become an idol for us. Um, The experience of the love of Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. I'll say it again. The experience of the love of Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. What I mean by that is that if experience becomes more important to us than Jesus himself, then we've made an idol of the emotion, of the comfort. In essence, we've made it about ourselves. The Bible is not lacking in examples of followers of God experiencing times of just extreme spiritual dryness where God doesn't seem real uh, and where his favor and his presence are just almost completely absent. You You can read this in the Psalms, Psalm 88, for example. Psalm 22, quoted by Jesus, who was one with the Father, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we want to say during those times, Oh, something is terribly wrong here. God's let us down. What we want to say, but Regent, I want you to hear me well in this. And so that that felt absence, that longing that you feel for the presence of God is itself God at work within you. There are some aspects of spiritual growth that really can only happen during those times uh, when you feel that God is totally absent. You learn things about your heart that you would never learn otherwise, and if you let them, these times can teach you. To rely on the grace of God in your emptiness, in your weariness, uh, in your brokenness in a way that you would never learn otherwise. My point with this whole aside about experience as an idol is this. You should expect spiritually dry times and spiritually dark times because God uses these in ways that we don't fully understand. And no matter what, rain or shine, you're actually called to be faithful and obey and live your life in submission to him, even without any sense of his presence uh, or any sense of the inside reality uh, becoming the most real thing to you. But this passage doesn't contradict that at all. We expect those long, dry times to come, but we also expect them eventually to, to go away. Eventually. And the Bible shows us that you have to experience and you have to expect both of these times in your life or you'll never really be the person that God wants you to be. So I was raised in a, in a Christian home from a young age. Uh, became a believer when I was six years old and I've been to lots of different types of churches throughout my life. But the, the, the truth of it is, almost all churches are going to prepare you for one or the other types of these experiences. Um, there's churches that are, have a, just a huge emphasis on obedience and faithfulness despite what may come. And we're kind of nervous in those types of churches about the spiritual stuff, uh, about those high experiences, and we don't ask people and expect, uh, teach people to expect these high experiences of God's glory and love and joy. So we don't lead people to, to expect those things. On the other hand, you, you've got other churches that are really big on the Spirit. They're big on, on experiences, and they, and they lift up that idea say that you have to personally know Christ. You have to experience his power and his anointing. But they don't really prepare people to expect long periods of spiritual dryness and darkness. So when those experiences come, uh, they'll say, well, hey, have you been confessing your sins? Are you, are you really right with God? Which maybe you're not, but sometimes you do. Uh, or if they, they just say, no, that just shouldn't be happening. When the truth of it is Sometimes it should. Sometimes God wills for those times to happen. And my hope for us as Regen, as a community, is that we can be a church in which our spiritual direction in this is nuanced enough, is biblical enough, to embrace both of these. So yes, all of this is to say that we need these experiences of the love and mercy of God in our life. And that's the first point of why we need it. Secondly, though, I want to talk about what it is, what are we talking about with this? It sounds kind of esoteric, right? <laughs> so you might ask me to just describe uh, the experience of the love of Christ more. And it's not really something that we can define per se. But we can try to describe it so you have a better idea, at least, of what it is. Uh, and the best way to describe it is actually to look in, this, in these verses, at the three petitions that Paul makes. The first one is in verse 16. Paul says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, inner being is a synonym for the heart in this passage. And in the Bible, your heart is not like the Valentine's hearts that you see. You know, it's not the lovey-dovey seat of emotion. The heart in the Bible is actually the control center for your entire self, your entire personality. Uh, It's your basic... Commitments, it's the things that you hope in. It's what you base your joy on, your happiness. Uh, and whatever the most kind of foundational faith assumptions and commitments are, they, that's what's going to affect everything, both mind, will, and emotions. Your heart determines what makes most sense to you rationally and what feelings move you, what actions you actually end up doing. So the, the, the inner being... It's the seed of the whole person. And the first prayer that Paul prays here is that the Holy Spirit will come in and strengthen and empower it, your inner self, to do what? That takes us to the second petition. The second petition is a a petition to comprehend and to know. Verses 17 and 18 say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth Comprehend to know what's going on here. It's this, uh, the power that is the strength that comes into your inner being is a power to grasp, to comprehend and know the love of Christ. And we talked about this earlier. You say, you know, don't Christians already know the love of Christ? Why would they be Christians unless they they knew that? And the, the answer is, well, yeah, they do. But no, they don't. But yeah, they do. And so on there's some ambiguity here. And Paul even gets at this in in verse 19. He addresses that ambiguity and he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Did you get that? To know something that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? There's, There's a mystery there, inherent in knowing the unfathomable love of Christ. So when Paul says, I'm praying that the Spirit will empower your inner being to know the love of Christ, he's not saying, I pray that you're going to understand the concept of Christ's love. The abstraction of Christ's love. No, he wants you to experience the actuality of Christ's love. This is actually praying for an inward experience through which Christ becomes as real to you, if not more real, than any other person. More real uh, than the love and approval of your parents, of your spouse, of your kids, of, of any professional acclaim. More affecting, more sweet than any of those things. More important than any kind of financial status you might have. It's more than anything. So all those things, when the love of Christ is active in your life, become relativized. They become less important to you. And what does that look like? It means maybe you're less insecure about them. and and They don't drive you as much in your day-to-day lives. You're not as anxious or upset about losing them because you actually experience the the real love of God in your inner being. Every bit as much as you experience the love of a human person's love. Sounds kind of crazy. And nobody has these experiences all the time. I, I doubt that even... You know, people have them every other day or every, every week in perpetuity, indefinitely. Like, But, but I, I want to make clear that this is real, that it's possible, it's available to us. Because sometimes we just brush it aside. If you look at great people of faith throughout history, you start to see sort of patterns of, of this type of encounter occurring with the love of God. These are people... Separated by centuries, separated by faith traditions, from all sorts of different backgrounds. And yet, when they write about their experience of the love of God, they write about it in strikingly similar terms, about their experiences of God. And I'm just going to give one example uh, this morning. And that's the, the example of Blaise Pascal. He was a, a French philosopher in the 1600s. Uh, really, if you look at his story, he's one of the great minds of history. And when he died, they, they found, sewed into the lining of his jacket, a diary entry of an experience that happened to him in the middle of the night, in the year 1654, for about two hours. And in those two hours, he experienced the love of God as a fire. And this, this man was a, an intellectual, a skeptic by nature. But after this experience, he never again doubted the reality of God or his own assurance of salvation and the love of God. And he describes it in these powerful words, and he sewed it into the lining of his jacket because he wanted it to be close to his heart. That's how important it was to him, and it changed his life forever. This, is, this might sound like a lofty, out-there experience, but I'm telling you, this experience is for everybody. You have to seek it, but you can have it. Uh, we went over two petitions. There's a third petition in here as well, and it's also really important. And it's that if the Spirit empowers your inner being so that abstract concepts of Jesus' love come into your inner being and and affect you from the center, then the last thing that it says is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That seems also kind of over the top and esoteric, but actually in the New Testament when it talks about the term fullness of God, it almost always means fullness of life, a pattern of life. What Paul is saying here is, is that you haven't just, the way that you know you haven't just had some emotional experience, uh, that you go on your spiritual retreat, come back on a spiritual high, show up again at work the next day, the way you know that you haven't just had some emotional experience is that it changes the way you actually live. If you have an experience with God's love and you, you weep and you're moved and then you go into your life and the people around you who know you see that you're just as insecure and just as anxious, Uh, you're just as driven and greedy as you were before, that your needs are just as great as they were before, then you haven't really had this experience. It doesn't invalidate the experience you had. It just hasn't happened in your innermost being. It's not fullness of life. It hasn't affected your mind and will and emotions, because if you actually experience Christ in your innermost being, it changes the way that you live. And I, I want to be clear, this, this isn't necessarily all at once. You don't snap your fingers and become a different person, but there's a gradual change. And more importantly, there's, that change is somewhat permanent. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the what. So we've talked about the why, we've talked about the what, I want to talk about the how. How do we receive this experience of God's love? If we look again at the passage, we can call out four really practical ways in which we can receive this experience of the love of God. So let's pay attention to that. I'm going to list them all together because they're they're kind of part of the same single thought. You can experience the love of God, but you have to do it through prayerful seeking, aggressive wrestling, in community, and centered on Christ. First of all, let's, let's talk about this prayerful seeking idea. When Paul gets to this, he knows that it's really not enough to just know the love of Christ with your mind, as I already said. It's not an abstraction. It's not just a concept. It has to be brought into the very center of who you are. And he says the biggest problem for most Christians is that these things that we know and they're true of us, they're not subjectively and, and existentially active in our lives. So why didn't Paul say, you know, here's a list of five or six things, you know, clickbait. Here's a BuzzFeed article, the top six things you can do to experience the love of God in your life. Why doesn't he do that for us? Give us the how-to manual, Paul. He doesn't because this is a prayer. Why does it need to be a prayer? Well, it needs to be a prayer and not something that you can just push buttons and receive what you want out of it because this is a gift of God. You have to pray for it. You have to seek it. The experience of the love of God is a gift. There was a a missionary in the 19th century to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. And after he died, they found his Bible that he had with him and that he read on a regular basis. And in that Bible, he had a bookmark. And on that bookmark, he had a a prayer that he had written uh, that supposedly he would pray every time he read his Bible and throughout the day as well. Uh, and the the verse that he would pray every day from that prayer, the first line of it was, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. And you can look at that and say, yeah, that's kind of sappy, a little poetic verse. But, and and maybe you could write something better, you know, that resonates with you more. And and that's kind of the point of what I'm trying to say is, find something. Find a prayer that directs you and centers you on God that you can bring to mind throughout the day. You can pray daily, hourly, that takes you away from the distractions and the, the immersion in, in this world and this life that you have and recenters you on Jesus and has you asking for the right things, namely to experience the love of God and let that be the most real thing, more real than anything else in your life. It's not some kind of a, a magical incantation or ritualistic chant that we're talking about. It's, it's a reminder of, to ourselves to sense and, you know, if, if, you're sen- if you're trying to remind yourself to sense, and when you're doing that, you're, you're sensing nothing. You're sensing absence. I want to encourage you. Even that absence itself can be a sign of God's presence. Because to long for the presence of God is to some degree to experience that you're, you're not capable of wanting this yourself. If right now you're starting to say, I want this, I, I want to experience this love of God, in my innermost self. I don't have this. Then even now, Jesus is very close at hand. You wouldn't be wanting his presence in the first place if it wasn't stirred in you by his spirit. So the first thing we can do to experience the love of God in our lives is to seek it prayerfully. But secondly, there's this idea of, of wrestling aggressively to experience the love of God. And that's sort of a counterpoint to this idea of prayerful seeking. Prayerful seeking is sort of recognizing a little bit of of passivity, that we're, in some senses, kind of powerless to attain the gift of the experience of God's love ourselves, that ultimately we need to receive it because it's a gift. But aggressive wrestling, hey, now here's the other side. A lot of of spiritual traditions can be kind of very assertive uh, or too passive, but you need both. And and here's why. Paul's saying in these verses, I want you, through the strength of the Spirit, the strength and power of the Spirit, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ. So our, our ESV translation that we use here in this church uses the word to comprehend. But the, the Greek word is catalambano. I, I said this this morning with an Italian accent too. I don't know why I do that. Catalambano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how it gets translated in other versions of the Bible is to grasp, Right? And even that, the word to grasp, doesn't really capture the Greek word here. The, it's sort of a strange word for Paul to use. And what it literally means, "katalambano," is to overtake someone, wrestle them to the ground, and rob them. Weird, right? So it's, it's a word that when used corporately can mean something like, you know, when an army sacks and plunders a city and takes out all the wealth. It's an aggressive word. What in the world is Paul talking about here? He's not saying that we're supposed to, like, wrestle to the ground and rob God. Although, you know, Jacob wrestled with God and, you know, got the blessing. But no, what he's, what he's saying is we're supposed to wrestle to the ground and rob the truths and the doctrines and the texts about God. Squeeze them for their truth. So, for example, there are a lot of texts in the Bible that say Jesus loves you. You've heard it all the time. But do you know it? Is it real to you? Do you dig deeper into God's word so that your life can be changed by it? Because there's pure gold there. God has blessed each and every one of you with the strength to think and to reason and apply it and pray until you get the riches out, until it cracks open, until it floods your life and radiates It's sensory language that I'm using because that's kind of how it works. Romans 5, 5 says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And how often do we look at our lives from this perspective of of scarcity, our spiritual lives from a perspective of scarcity, when we're just seeking God and saying, God, come on, I'm hungry, give me something when a feast has been laid out before you, a feast for you to enjoy. Take something like Isaiah 49, 15, where God says this, can a woman forget the little baby nursing at her breast? And most of us, I think, our answer would be like, no, that's a pretty strong instinct. The woman cares about the baby. It's just natural. But God says, yeah, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. She might forget, but I will not forget you. God says, my love for you is infinitely greater than a mother's love for her baby. What does that do for you? Do you hear that and say, oh, how nice. It's poetic, but it's, it's not enough for me. I need something more. It's not good enough. God wants you to experientially grasp his truth, to wrestle with it. Wrestle it to the ground and possess its riches. How can you do that? Well, you can, first of all, make sure you engage with it, meditate on it, contemplate it, and then pray until God's Spirit shows you the love of Jesus. It's not a passive activity. This is a struggle, a wrestling. But the wealth Regen, brothers and sisters, the wealth, the riches that will fill you and the warmth that you'll find in a world that we live in that's cold is incomparable. And this isn't something you do just with your mind or just with your heart. It's your whole self, all of you, that engages in this. So we've talked about prayerful seeking. We've talked about aggressive wrestling and the need for both of them. So it's not I just sit around and say, God, hit me with it. I'm ready. And it's not, oh, I need to like spend five days just only studying the Bible so that I get something. No, it's, it's both. But now let's keep going. The third thing is that these are done in community. What do I mean by by in community? Well, the text says, I want you to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints, not by yourself. I hope that those of us here who are part of home groups uh, at Regen have experienced this. uh, That when you get together and you study the Bible and you learn things there, that you never would have gotten on your own things are opened up for you from the different perspectives of people in the group. But there's more than that. The Bible says where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, God's spirit is there. The Holy Spirit takes the love of Christ and makes it more real in our hearts. We're doing that this morning. So you've got to be part of a community, part of a church. Lastly, so we've said prayerful seeking, aggressive wrestling, in community, The final thing is centered on Christ. So again, Paul isn't just saying, I want you to know the love of Christ. I just want you to grasp these abstract truths. He wants it to become personal and real. And the truths of Scripture become most personal and most real to us in the story of the gospel of Jesus. And when they're personal and real, they're transformative. But Paul gets us started on this focus on the gospel of Jesus. He wants to make it personal. So he says, I want you to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. What is he doing listing all these dimensions? What does that add to us in the text? It's kind of strange. Well, he's, he's meditating on it. He's meditating on the dimensions of Christ's love. How often do we just take the love of Christ at surface value? It's just like, oh, the love of Christ, it's that thing that's always there for me. I'm done. No, there's a lot to it. It's a rich, rich thing. You could spend your life meditating on it. So he gets us started on it, uh, considering that it's greater and more amazing than we let ourselves consider. And I, I want us to follow sort of in the wake of these dimensions that he lists and consider what he might be talking about here. So let's, let's do that. Church, what do you know of the breadth of the love of Christ? It says in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 that on the last day we're going to sing to the Lamb of God and we're going to say oh Lord Jesus Christ you have bought us by thy blood for God from every tribe language people and nation why will we do that in the last day because Jesus himself said in, in John chapter 12 when I'm lifted up on the cross I will draw all men to myself all men all women all people This is a story at the center of our faith. The love of Christ is for all the world. Every people, every nation, every tribe. Do you see the breadth, the width of Jesus' love? Do you see the length of the love of Christ? Again, in in the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. What? What does that mean? for him to be slain before the foundation of the world. Well, what it means is he decided before the foundations of the world were set that he was going to lose it all for us. In the deeps of time, he made this decision and nothing stopped him until the moment he came into this world as a baby. And then he was deserted and betrayed and rejected and hung on a cross. And he could have come down from the cross, but he chose to stay on that cross. It's the greatest act of love in the history of the world. Have you seen the length of Jesus' love? And not only retrospective, think about billions of years from now, we'll still be enjoying the love of Jesus. Consider the length of that love. What about the depth of the love of Christ? It's a verse that like, we've heard probably many times. Philippians 2, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. How would he like to become a worm? It's kind of what it's like. And, and worse than that, worse than his emptying of himself and becoming a man, he died. And worse than just dying, he was forsaken He said, by God, my God, why have you forsaken? And then he descended into the depths of hell to save you. Do you know the depth of the love of Christ? Lastly, we thought about the height of the love of Christ. You know how we can think about that height. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying before he's crucified. And he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. And later, I desire that they also, whom you've also given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He's doing all of this so that he can bring us to the pinnacle of all things, to share in the glory of God. There's nothing higher than that. That's the love of Jesus for us. Church, let's behold the breadth, the length, and the depth and the height of the love of Christ. It's in the gospel that you see that. It's Jesus' sacrifice that moves us to cry out and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. We don't love through force of will. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. For those of you who are here who, who've never known this love that we're talking about this morning, who've maybe heard the story and, and been shown the idea of this love, I want you to know that, that that love is calling out to you this morning and inviting you to know and experience it. For those of us who've given our lives to Jesus but who've just forgotten what that love is, we haven't experienced it viscerally in deep inside of us for a long, long time. I want to encourage you and I want to, to tell you where to seek it, where to expect it. This is available for us. Let's meditate on it and pursue it. Let's pray together. Lord, in you we have abundance, God. We have the riches of your love to feast upon. Help us, Lord, not to simply uh, lose the expectation or the heightened desire to know you and to love you, Lord, but stir within us through your Spirit. Pour into us your love. Lord, I pray that you, you teach us how to do this by seeking prayerfully and faithfully or by wrestling aggressively to get the marrow out of your, your truths. God, by sharing your love for each other in community and learning from one another what it is that your love has done for us. And Lord, by, by never ceasing to focus on you at the center of all that we are and all that we do. Spirit, I ask that you, you make the love of Christ real to us. And everything that flows from that, Lord, keeping your commandments because we love you, Lord, loving you with all our heart and soul and strength, loving our neighbor as ourself, that all of that would flow from that place of knowing deeply and undeniably that we are loved by you. Thank you, Lord. Pray this in your name, amen. Amen.